Mark chapter 10, verses 46 to 52. Give ear to the reading of God's holy word. Mark writes, And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up. He is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, the scripture says that man does not live by bread alone, but by what? By every word that proceeds from his mouth. So may that be true of us this morning. Well, we're coming here at the end of chapter 10 of Mark's gospel. And if you've maybe read the gospel of Mark a number of times on your own, if you're familiar with it, uh, you might know that starting in the very next chapter, chapter 11, all the way to the end of the book, uh, we, we really come to the section that deals primarily with the Passion Week of Christ. I mean, think about that. Mark is 16, chap- 16 short chapters long. This is actually one of the longer chapters in, in Mark's gospel. Um, but everything following chapter 10, our text this morning, uh, starting with the triumphal entry in the first verses of chapter 11, all the way through to his betrayal by Judas, his arrest, his trials, his condemnation, and finally his crucifixion and resurrection. That's what the rest of the entire Gospel of Mark deals with. We are, we are coming quickly to the section that focuses on Christ's death and resurrection. And so the final six chapters of Mark's Gospel will deal with, in some sense, the Passion Week of Christ. That's about a third of Mark's Gospel. That's not to say that, that the teachings of Christ that we've seen beforehand, or the miracles, the casting out of demons, healing of, of the blind like we see here, uh, raising the dead, all kinds of those things, his parables, not to say those things aren't important, but the fact that, that Mark, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, focuses a third, roughly, of his time on the cross and resurrection in some way should be very telling to us. It's not an accident that should grab your attention as you read through the Gospels. The Gospel of John is very similar. It's even more so. The Gospel of John is 21 chapters in length, and just about half of the book, chapters 12 through 21, deals with one week, the Passion Week, the week of Christ's triumphal entry, his death on the cross, and his resurrection. So what that should instruct, what that should tell us is Christ's death and resurrection, his sufferings and glory, the way Luke puts it, that they are central to the message of the Gospels. And they're central to the message of the Gospels because they're central to the message of all the Scriptures. All the scriptures, in some way, shape, or form, both Old and New Testament alike, are about Christ himself, and in particular, about his death and resurrection, his sufferings and his glory. Jesus himself tells us this more than once in the Gospels. In Luke chapter 24, that's after the resurrection, you have this familiar scene, some of you I'm sure have read it a number of times. You have Christ on the the Emmaus road with two of his disciples, we don't know which ones, it doesn't say, 
But he's on the road with two of the disciples. And Luke says in verse 16, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So they didn't know who they didn't know who it was they were talking to. They just knew there was somebody walking along the road, some stranger. And to them, he seemed like somebody who must have been living under a rock the past week. He's asking them, hey, what's going on? What's the news? And are you the only one in Jerusalem that doesn't know what happened? They didn't realize who they were talking to, of course, when they said that. Now, these disciples didn't really understand what had happened. And, you know, it's easy for us, knowing what we know, having the full, the completed scriptures and having read the Gospels from front to back. It's easy for us to kind of look at them and, you know, kind of not, you know, shake our heads at them and wag our, our fingers and say, oh, how silly they didn't understand the resurrection. They didn't understand any of it. They, they couldn't comprehend, and, and the Gospels, all the way through the Gospel of Mark, it, it tells us this, that they just couldn't quite grasp how could the Messiah, the King of the Jews, be rejected? How could he be treated shamefully and scornfully? How could he be put to death instead of enthroned in Jerusalem? How could he, how, why would he have to die? How could he die? They thought that meant everything was over. And in reality, what did it really mean? The cross led to his glory. It really did lead to his enthronement, not in Jerusalem, but at the right hand of God the Father, an even greater, an even greater throne than they could have thought of. They also didn't grasp that his death and resurrection were the only way for the redemption of his people to be accomplished. And they certainly didn't understand that the guy they were talking to was the risen Lord Jesus Christ himself. Luke 24, verses 25 to 26, Jesus explains them to them what, how this was so. It says, he, say, he tells them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ the Messiah, should suffer these things, I mean, all the things that that Jesus had suffered, and enter into his glory. So the message of the Old Testament prophets was about primarily one thing, the sufferings and glory of the Christ, the Messiah. And he says it was necessary for the Christ to suffer these things, his rejection, crucifixion, and everything else. And then to enter into his glory, that's the resurrection, ascension, his intercession and ruling from God's right hand. Why was it necessary? We see it central in the Gospels. Why was his cross, his sufferings and resurrection necessary? First, those things were necessary if his people were to be saved from their sins. No cross and resurrection, no gospel. No salvation, no anything. They were also necessary because, what does he say? He tells them they were slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. It was necessary because the prophets had foretold these things and had prophesied these things. The word of God could not be broken. And so there's a sense in which if they had understood their Old Testament, their their scriptures, they should have expected these things to happen. They should not have been surprised. It should not have been a mystery to them. That's why in verse 27 of Luke 24, Mark uh, Jesus, Jesus adds, he says, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, ex- he interpreted or explained to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So all the scripture is about Jesus Christ, Old and New Testament alike, and all of it is in some way about his sufferings and glory, his cross and resurrection and the salvation of sinners through him. So that, that explains the layout of Mark's gospel. That explains why the last six chapters You know, Jesus' earthly ministry was probably uh, roughly three years. And so you could say the first 
10 chapters of Mark's gospel is roughly a three-year period, and the last six chapters are one week, or just over a week, eight days if you want to get technical, right? So without the death and resurrection of Christ, think about this. Without the last six chapters, so to speak, of Mark's gospel, without the death and resurrection of Christ, all of his teachings, as important as they are, would profit us nothing. Without the cross and resurrection, Jesus' miracles, as great as they were, would profit us nothing, and they would really profit the people he did them for, not much more than nothing. Even the miracle we're looking at this morning, Bartimaeus receiving his sight, if that's all he got, if that's all that Jesus did without the cross and resurrection, his sight being recovered for a short time, a short number of years, really profits him nothing. Without Jesus giving his life as a ransom for many, as we saw back in verse 45, the example that he sets for us to follow would be of no profit to us. Jesus is and has to be more than a good teacher. He is much more than a miracle worker, although he is that. He's much more than a role model or a life coach or whatever you want to call him. It's only his work of redemption that gives those things meaning. Without those things, following Christ means nothing. Well, we're going to see a few things from our text with Bartimaeus here. The first thing we're going to see is a blind beggar's condition. A blind beggar's condition. This little short text, we see the healing of blind Bartimaeus, as he's often referred to as. Um, This you might not know or you might know. This is actually the last miraculous healing in the Gospel of Mark. All, All of that kind of comes to a close. doesn't mean that he possibly didn't do more, but Mark certainly didn't think those things were important after this point. This is the last miracle of healing before the resurrection of Christ himself in the gospel. And in verse 46, Mark tells us, he says, And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, and then he says, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. Now, if you're familiar with the, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, Uh, You might know that in Matthew's parallel account of this, he mentions that there were two blind men, not one. And it's almost as if you you laid Matthew's account and Mark's side by side. um, it's, It's as if the whole thing was double. Two blind men cry out to Jesus. Two blind men cry out for mercy. Jesus stops and heals them both. And they both follow him. Although in Matthew's account, uh, neither one of them are named. Mark gives us Bartimaeus' name. Now, some, some uh, I, I use this, this phrase a lot, but liberal, unbelieving scholars, so-called, take this as a contradiction. They're often quick to jump at any excuse to call something a contradiction in Scripture, but they, they call it a contradiction, but a difference does not equal a contradiction, does it? We may be, we may be curious, we may say, why, why would Mark and, and Luke focus on one and Matthew focus on two? Did Matthew need glasses? Did he see, was he seeing double? You know, was there some reason that he said there were two? Uh, I think the simplest answer, although it might not satisfy all, is that there were two. But for whatever reason, Mark focuses on one. And he focuses on one very, very specifically. He gives us his father's name. He gives us, he's the only one that gives us Bartimaeus' name. He gives us his name. He gives us his father's name. And so a difference in the two accounts does not mean that there is a contradiction in those two accounts. For whatever reason, Mark and Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, wrote of one, focused on one rather than 
rather than both in telling their account of the same event. And in some ways, if, if Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, the word synoptic comes from, it, the word means similar or same viewpoint, right? John, John reads very differently, not different in actual content and meaning, but the story reads differently. Well, if Matthew, Mark, and Luke were identical, why would we even have them? If, if our expectation is, well, I read Matthew and Mark, it should be ditto, 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 the same thing over and over again, with no, no possible difference in any emphasis. It would be kind of strange to even have all three of them. God gave us all four Gospels in his word for a reason, and we should take them as they, they are and believe them as the word of God. Well, this, this last miracle of Christ prior to the resurrection has a lot, I think, to teach us. The first thing we should take notice of is, is Bartimaeus' condition. This blind man's uh, condition. He's blind. He's reduced to begging at the side of the road. He's sitting on the sidelines, so to speak, when everybody else is following Christ on the road to Jerusalem. He can't see. He can't see where he's going. He can't see what he's doing. And because he can't do any of those things, what possible work could he have done in that day? What meaningful, profitable work would there have been for someone who couldn't even see to do the kind of work that was common in their day. And so he was reduced to begging for his daily needs. You know, we see in our, in our own day, in our own time and place, we see many on the side of the road at street corners with signs. And, you know, cynically, I have to admit, very often you see them and you think, such as this person looks very able-bodied. He doesn't look like he's unable to work. Uh, and so often we kind of harden our hearts uh, towards them, uh, whereas there are at times still people that have genuine Need. Well, there was no doubt about this man's genuine need, Bartimaeus. He was dependent upon the kindness and compassion of others, of strangers. And as we see even in our text here in the Gospel of Mark, kindness and compassion, even among the followers of Christ, is often a rare commodity. It was certainly a rare commodity here in this account. Now, it, it, it's easy to read. It's such a short passage. It's easy to read it and kind of pass right by it and not give much thought to it, but it would be really difficult to overstate the misery of this man's condition. It's easy for us to read this text and kind of not feel the sympathy for him at all that he deserves and deserved. And in that sense, you know, we're not alone. We would have fit, in some sense, right in with that crowd, as we've just seen. Now think about, think about this. Is that poor blind beggar Bartimaeus, is he not a, a, a picture of all of us outside of Christ? I think that is what it's, it's intended to be for us. It's a real account. It really happened. But I think it's included in the gospel for what it teaches us about ourselves. Outside of Jesus Christ, we are all spiritually blind. We are all helpless to help ourselves, to save ourselves. We're unable to do anything to save ourselves. Do you see a little bit of yourself you know, when you, read it, when you read a book, a fiction book or whatever, when you watch a movie, do you, not, do you not kind of put yourself in the story? And we're always the protagonist. We're always the good guy with the, white, with the white hat. But do you see yourself in Bartimaeus? Who do you see yourself as in the story? This, you know, none of us, I think, would say, well, I see myself as Jesus. You know? there, there's almost nobody good to see in the story other than Christ. You're either the blind guy or you're the guy mocking the blind guy or telling him to shut up. That's, that's, those are your... Those are your choices. Do you see your, your former life outside? If you're a Christian today, do you see your past in Bartimaeus? Your past spiritual blindness? Do 
Do you remember, if you, were, if you were converted later in life, do you remember what it was like? Can you look back on your former life and remember what it was like to be spiritually blind and not know the Lord and be a stranger to God's grace, to be enslaved to the sin and misery that go along with it? Do you remember what that was like? And do you praise God for the difference he's made by his grace in Christ? Do you understand that if not for the sheer grace and mercy of God in Jesus Christ, that you would even now, as we sit here, you would, you would be right now in a far worse condition than Bartimaeus was. Being blind and begging at the side of the road, as bad as that sounds, is nothing compared to being spiritually dead and blind. Bartimaeus also, if you keep the whole chapter of Mark chapter 10 in mind, Bartimaeus also serves as a, a, a kind of a very amazing contrast with the rich young ruler that happened that we saw earlier in the same chapter, back in verses 17 to 22. Think about, put these two men side by side. There's a reason they're both in this chapter. I think Mark puts them both here under the inspiration of the Spirit, that we might compare the two, that we might see the differences between the two. When you think of the rich young ruler, this is a man who had every conceivable human advantage that one could imagine. He had everything going for him. If, you know, if this guy comes to your church, and comes down the proverbial aisle, uh, you, you can't wait for this guy to join the church. You can't wait for this guy to be a new, a new member. He, he, had, uh, he had riches. He had respectability. He had morality. He had religiosity. The, the title ruler has a, the indication that he was some kind of authority, a person of authority in the local synagogue. He wasn't just a pew sitter. This guy was doing things at church, so to speak. And not only that, think about what he did when he came to Jesus. He didn't come by night. He came to Jesus publicly in front of everyone. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He asks the right question. He asks the right, the right person. If anybody was ever a prime candidate to come to Christ for salvation, it was that guy. And yet, what does Mark tell us? He says that he went away, verse 22, he went away sorrowful, for he had many possessions. At the end of the day, the rich young ruler did not come to Christ on the basis of mercy, as Bartimaeus did. The rich young ruler came to Christ on the basis of his own merit, on the basis of his own worthiness. And so he went away sorrowful. At the end of the day, he loved his possessions more than he loved God himself. At the end of the day, he valued his earthly possessions more than he valued his own soul. We don't even learn his name. It's much like that parable of Lazarus and the rich man. The guy who the world would notice, we don't even hear his name, either in the parable or in the real life account here with, with uh, the rich young ruler. All we hear is there was a, a certain man, a rich young ruler. We don't get his name. His name is not recorded. I think that's, that's kind of a frightening thing if you think about what that seems to imply. But we know Bartimaeus' name, don't we? The guy the world ignores, the guy the people that were following Christ on that road were ignoring and hoping to, to quiet. We know his name. His name is recorded in Scripture, and there's no doubt it's recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life as well. And so the next thing we see here is the blind beggar's cry for mercy. The blind beggar's cry for mercy. Look at verses 47 to 48. It says, And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, or Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. 
But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Bartimaeus couldn't see Jesus. But he heard that Jesus was approaching. And he heard that Jesus of Nazareth, or Jesus the Nazarene, was approaching. Now that, that may have a negative connotation. We don't, we don't know. We, you know. we can't read the hearts of people that you know, the scripture doesn't tell us about. But to call him the Nazarene or the Nazarite, it, it, it could be one of two things. It could be he had you know, kind, of, kind of like Samson, taking the Nazarite vow. He was a Nazarite. He was special. He was set apart. It could be that. Or it could be elsewhere in scripture it was said, can anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth was, was the backwoods. Nazareth was not the place uh, that you want in your resume as where you came from. Humanly speaking, it was the kind of place where you thought, you know, where? Where is he from? It's almost like saying you're from Ramona rather than New York. You know, some, some important place where important people come from. You know, a small town, when somebody becomes famous from it, they put billboards up. Hey, there's finally a reason that we are on the map. You know, it, it could have been kind of emphasizing the humanity of Christ in a, in a negative way. And saying, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, and we hope that's not what it was, but that, that could have been the reason. But that was all he needed to hear was that Jesus was there, even if he couldn't see him. And so what did, what did Bartimaeus do? There wasn't much he could do, but he could do one thing, and he cried out for mercy. He cried out for mercy to Jesus Christ, and he did so repeatedly. That's the way that the, 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 the tense of the verb there, when it says, uh, that he began to cry out. Crying out, it's part of my grammar lesson, but it's in the imperfect tense. And it has the idea of something being done over and over again. It wasn't just him at the side of the road and hearing Jesus and saying one time, real quick, just in case he heard him, you know, Jesus, son of David, had mercy on me. It was loud. It was over and over again. And how do we know that was the case? Because the people tried to make him stop, didn't they? The people that were with Jesus, ironically enough, opposed him. It says many, not just one guy, not just one curmudgeonly rude guy in the crowd, many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. That's a real polite way of saying they told him to shut up. You're wrecking the parade. You're, you're kind of inconveniencing us. You know, we don't, we're having a good time here. We're following the Messiah to his coronation and you're kind of raining on our parade here. We don't want to, we want to think of glory. We don't want to think of having to deal with these kinds of things. You know, come back another day. You know, Jesus doesn't have time for this. Jesus is bit. Jesus was in a hurry, wasn't he? You know, when you read that first verse, it's easy to kind of blow right past it. Verse 46, the first part of it. Jesus is going where? He's on the way to Jerusalem, it says. And they came to Jericho. And what's the next thing it says? And as he was leaving Jericho. It's almost like you want to tell Mark, like, why even include it? Is there a reason you put this on your map? You know, you put the pin, you barely have time to put the pin or, you know, take the selfie in, Jer- in, in Jericho and you're already on the way. Except for one thing. Before he could leave, before he could get to Jerusalem, there was this one blind beggar that he had to meet. Now think about this. Think about, you know, I've read this text, I don't know how many times, and it never struck me until this past week how rude and how awful it was that these people said what they said. I mean, picture not somebody that you question whether or not they need help. Picture a blind, helpless beggar on the road next to you. It's one thing to kind of pretend you don't see. 
I don't, I don't, what am I supposed to do? I can't, you know, I can't make world peace. I'm just one person. I can't make, fill everybody's needs. They didn't just ignore him. They told him to shut up. They told him to stop. They rebuked him. That's a harsh word. You know, we, we often, you know, we don't think about rebuking. Rebuking is telling someone they're doing something wrong or inappropriate. They rebuked this poor blind beggar. And it wasn't just one guy, it was many that did it. How hard-hearted did they have to be in order to be walking with Jesus himself, who just told them that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many at the end of the previous passage. And the very next thing we see is his followers, disciples and others, a great crowd, telling this man, Jesus doesn't have time for you, basically. Please go away. You're, you're making things uh, not go the way they should go. Now, he knew that he needed mercy, didn't he? And so he kept crying out for it. And in fact, you've got to give him credit for his stick-to-itiveness. When the crowd, when many in that crowd rebuked him, what does it say he did? Sorry, he wasn't going to quit. It says, all the more, he cried out all the more and said again, Son of David, have mercy on me. And what's the next thing that happened? You know, it's often said that the two most amazing words in Scripture are, but God. That's not without reason. Well, I think we have two words here in verse 49 that are probably some of the most amazing words in Scripture. It says, Jesus did what? Stopped or stood still. They're walking on the road. They're probably going at a brisk pace. They're in a hurry. And Jesus came and stood stock still when he heard that man crying out to him for mercy. Jesus heard the cry of that poor, helpless, blind beggar. In as much of a hurry as he seemed to have been to get to Jerusalem, he stopped and took time for that one man. All through the Gospels, you see that saving sinners was no interruption for Christ. Helping those who were in sin and misery was no it wasn't a sidetrack it wasn't an inconvenience or an eruption it's why he came in the first place it's why he was going to Jerusalem in the first place was to accomplish the salvation of sinners now Jesus could have just stopped and addressed Bartimaeus directly himself but it's not what he does what does he actually do he tells those who are with him and probably some of whom were the same people that were just rebuking Bartimaeus he tells them to call him. He doesn't just call him himself. He t- you guys that were just rebuking him, you call him. You tell him I want to see him. Makes them who had given bad news turn around and have to give good news to Bartimaeus. Glad tidings from the, from the Christ. And that's just what they did. It says, what did they say in verse 49? They said to this man after rebuking him, take heart. Take heart. Get up. He is calling you. Well, that's, again, that's all Bartimaeus needed to hear, wasn't it? What did he do? He sprung up, it says. He sprang up, verse 50, and came to Jesus. He threw off his cloak, his outer garments, like his jacket you would think of. And, and, and just like he had done with James and John earlier in the same chapter, Jesus asks him a question. It almost seems like a silly question to, to our ears at times. He says, what do you want me to do for you? Remember James and John, what did they want him to do for them? They wanted to sit one on his right and one on his left when he entered his glory. And Jesus said to them, you, don't, you have no idea what you're asking. Well, he asks the same question to Bartimaeus, and what did Bartimaeus say? He wanted his sight restored. What, what we think of is obvious, but he still had to ask. 
That's a, that's a lesson for us for our prayers. God knows everything you need. Doesn't mean you don't have to pray. Doesn't mean you don't have to ask. He uses, he has decided to use our prayers and ordained to use our prayers to accomplish his will in our lives. And what did Jesus say to him in verse 52, the last verse of our text? Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And Mark says it there at the end there, he, immediately he recovered his sight. As soon as Jesus said the word, the man could see again. There was no mistaking what had, what had happened. Now, the, the word for made well there, when he says, your faith has made you well, it's the same word that's often translated, and I would say most often translated, saved. You could translate this rightly, your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. Now, certainly that included him receiving his sight Again, But I think the text, the wording of the text, is kind of a, a blessed ambiguity. I think, I think Mark means for us to understand this man received more than his physical eyesight. His faith had granted him not just that, but his salvation of his soul as well. And that leads us to the last point. We go from a blind beggar's condition to a blind beggar's cry for mercy to now a blind beggar's faith. I should have said a blind beggar's sight, but... The last thing we see here is his faith. Notice, what is it that Jesus points our attention to about Bartimaeus? It's his faith. He says, go your way. Your faith has made you well or your faith has saved you. Now, Jesus says that his faith saved him. Strictly speaking, what or who saved him? Jesus is the one that saved him. Uh, but he, he, used, he saved him through faith. His faith was in Christ not just in some abstract notion of faith in and of itself. It was Bartimaeus' faith by which he received and rested upon and cried out to Christ for salvation. Faith is not just positive thinking. Faith is not just a, a good attitude on, on life. That is not faith. Faith is only as good, they say, as the object that it's placed in. We are not saved, you are not saved by faith in faith. That is not how you are saved. You are saved by faith in Christ alone. Not just faith in the abstract, faith in Christ himself. Now, how do we know that this blind man had faith in Jesus? How do we know that? How great was his faith? Well, look at, look at what he calls Jesus at least twice and really over and over again in the text. He calls him son of David. The text shows it twice, but he must have said it over and over again. Verses 47 to 40. Son of David. What does son of David mean? It's a messianic title. He's saying that, you know, in, without saying all these words, he's saying by calling him son of David, that he believed Jesus Christ was the one foretold and promised all through the Old Testament scriptures, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 until his day. He's the one that we've all been waiting for for all these hundreds and hundreds of and even thousands of years. He's saying, you, Jesus, the one I can't see, but the one I'm hearing about, the one who's on the way to Jerusalem, the, the royal city, he, he's saying, you're the one that was the fulfillment of the promise made to David, that God was going to take one of his descendants of David and sit him on the throne, seat him on the throne forever. And the, the, and the increase of his government would have no end, as Isaiah says, He's saying that's what he believed Jesus to be. You're that one. You're the one that we've been waiting for. Not only that, but he believed that Jesus was able and willing to heal him and restore his eyesight. 
That's not normal. That's some great faith, but it's faith in a great Savior. That is something he never would have asked David himself. If David himself had stood before this blind man, he would not have said, Hey, David, hey, king, can you do something about my eyesight? But when he heard of Jesus, it's exactly what he asked. When Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? He said he wanted to recover his eyesight. And what else? How else do we know he believed besides the fact that Jesus himself said he believed? What does he do after he recovers his sight? He followed on the way. Verse 52. Following the Lord Jesus Christ is always, always one of the fruits or results of a true and living faith in Jesus. Always. You are not saved by your following, but the following follows faith. It's a result of that faith. Bartimaeus decided that whatever way Jesus was going, that's the way he was going to. What did Jesus actually say? Literally, Jesus said, go. Our text puts it as, go your way. In other words, go about your business. You know, go do whatever you want, but what did Bartimaeus want to do? When Jesus said, go, Bartimaeus said, which way are you going? Think about this. You know, Jesus, what does Jesus say? His sheep hear his voice and do what? They follow him. Well, Bartimaeus heard his voice, figuratively and literally and spiritually, and he followed. He followed his good shepherd, his savior, his redeemer. Now think about this. How wonderful is it that the very first thing this poor blind man saw when he recovered his sight, he probably could see before at some point and lost his sight the way the text seems to indicate. But what's the first thing he saw when his sight was restored. Christ. The first thing he gets to see is Jesus. Jesus didn't heal him from a distance. He healed him and talked to him directly. And this man saw Christ. However long Bartimaeus had been blind and suffered and had been reduced to begging, he got to, saw, he got to see Jesus Christ with his own eyes. And you and I who have believed on Christ have something in common with Bartimaeus. Maybe you haven't thought about that besides the fact that before Christ, before faith in him, you were blind and had nothing to offer and were reduced to begging for mercy. Uh, as 1 Peter 1, 8-9 tells us, we believe in Jesus before we get to see him, just like Bartimaeus. Peter writes there, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him presently. You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You and I, if you're, if you're in Christ, you will see him one day. Though you believe in him now, yet you haven't seen him, but one day you will. One day, if you're a believer in Christ, one day your faith will become sight. One day you will see Jesus and get to behold his glory for all of eternity in heaven with him. That's really the great Christian hope is seeing Christ, having the hope of seeing Christ one day. Well, think about one last thing. Everywhere the gospel is preached, everywhere the gospel of Christ is preached in this world, this man's testimony is also preached. And everywhere the gospel is preached, and this man's testimony, as we've heard this morning, is preached, sinners are drawn to the Savior just as he himself had been. How many will be in heaven one day who came to believe in Christ after hearing this passage that we're looking at this morning preached. How many might come up to Bartimaeus in heaven? Think about that. You know, Bartimaeus could have felt sorry for himself. He could have said, hey, you know, why, do, why me? Why do I have to suffer all this? 
And he didn't get to see. He didn't know. Jesus didn't pull him aside as far as we know and say, okay, here's what happened, here's why. But think about the way the Lord used him. Not just saved him, but used him for his glory. And so this morning, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't say always, have you come to Christ yourself for salvation? Have you let things, circumstances in your life, other people, even followers of Christ, deter you from crying out to him for mercy? Do you believe in him? If you don't, do not delay. Turn from your sins, turn to Jesus by faith and live. He won't turn you away. Just as he did with Bartimaeus, he will stop and show mercy. But we can only come to him on the basis of mercy, as, Bar- as Bartimaeus did, not on the basis of our own merit, the way the rich young ruler tried to do. As Jesus said back in verse 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This text should tell us Jesus has time for every sinner that cries to him for mercy. And the Lord Jesus Christ still gives sight to the blind. Why did that blind man not just receive his sight? Why did he believe that Jesus was who he was, said he was? Who gave him the, the spiritual sight to do that except the Lord himself? Jesus still gives sight to the blind even in our day. It happens every time a sinner hears the gospel of Christ and believes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the one uh, through your Son that you give sight to the blind, that you, uh, we are all outside of Christ. We are all just like that beggar on the side of the road. We can't do a thing. We don't know where I'm going. We don't know the way. We can't even see the way. And we have nothing to offer. We aren't like the rich young ruler, thinking that we have all these things to offer to you, we are all we can do is cry out for mercy and we thank you so much for your great mercy and compassion and grace in Jesus Christ that you you save us not on the basis of any good works that we have done or anything in us but by your mercy and grace in your son who died and rose again to to die the death that we deserved took up took the wrath of your wrath for our sins upon himself that we might be forgiven for all of our sins He lived the perfect life in our place and his righteousness is accounted to us that we might be accepted by you, a holy God, as perfectly righteous in your sight on account of our union with Christ. We thank you for that. We thank you for that we we used to live in all kinds of ways of of sin and wickedness and rebellion and unbelief, that that Christ has redeemed us from our former way of life, that we, we now are raised with him to new life and to walk in newness of life. We thank you for your mercy in all these things, that you did not leave us to die in our sin and misery, but sent your Son to do all this on our behalf. So we do pray this morning that if there's anyone here this morning that does not yet know you, who has not cried out to Christ for mercy and salvation, that you might make today the day of their salvation, that they might look to Christ and live and be saved from their sin and misery and have life and joy and peace and all those things that only come through Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.